guys five movies um this is chris gasberry and frank pelican and this week we are going to be looking at the top five horror movies involving hauntings which is a mouthful but um uh haunting movies or involving ghosts i didn't think quite fit so um but before we get into that, I wanted to ask you a question just as a news item for the week. Okay. Um, earlier in the week, the Oscars decided to add a uh, mm. outstanding achievement in popular film, is what they're calling the title, Yeah. Um, to allow some of the blockbuster winners to uh, gain access, I guess, to the acclaim of an Oscar. Um, how do you feel about that? I feel like... I feel like in a lot of ways the Oscars have been kind of a joke for a long time. Um, I don't think that maybe since, I mean, maybe I was idealistic as a kid, but I, I feel like the Oscars for the better part of almost two decades haven't represented the actual best films of the year. They just represent the films that bring the most attention to the Academy to vote on. Um, like stuff like Crash, I mean, it's a terrible movie. Um, things like like King's Speech and Hurt Locker, which you know, whatever they're fine movies, but they're not like Oscar caliber, you know, Best Picture winners, right? And I think this is just another way that the Academy is trying to give relevance to. I think what's mostly just kind of a pointless celebration of themselves, like it's just kind of masturbatory. And I don't. I think there's enough ways to recognize a film by its box office, including. You know, most importantly, it's box office. But, you know, you have the People's Choice Awards, you have the Golden Globes, stuff like the MTV Movie Awards that all recognize, you know, achievements in film just based on, like, how much money they made. That I don't know. Like, I think it's a pointless endeavor. I think it's going to add time to what's already considered, like, an overly long broadcast. And I don't think it adds any relevance or interest. Like, really? Do, do you think I'm... Do, I mean... Wouldn't one of the reasons to do it, from their point of view, would be to gain viewers possibly to the Oscars? So wouldn't it possibly maybe have people tune in more to for like a mainstream audience tune in possibly? Maybe, but what does a mainstream audience care about the fact that like the Avengers wins best achievement in popular film or something? I mean, it's number one. It's going to be twelve minutes of a you know, however long it takes to do that. And there's already way too many movies that are nominated for Best Picture anyway that it's diluted, you know, sure. the importance of that that award. And now you're going to add, what, like another like 8 to 12 movies to that that are just solely based on the fact that people went and saw them? I mean, again, I think, like, people vote with their wallets anyway, which is why so many, like, so there's so many terrible Transformers sequels. And, like, giving something like Transformers an Oscar for anything is just kind of, I don't know, it just further, like, invalidates the whole process. No, I mean, I can't argue with that. I, I, I think it's a silly endeavor. Um, There's a lot of celebrities that are actually really opposed to it, Yeah, too. I saw Rob Lowe, like, have a really dramatic tweet, like, this is, like, the end of Hollywood or something by, uh, I was like, like I said, I think, I think it was a little dramatic, yeah. but, um... But at the same time, like, yeah, there's some people that are pretty passionate in Hollywood about this. Um, and I can't say I blame them. Um, I do think we moved away from, like, a... Like, when we were growing up, like, you know, primarily in the 90s, it's like, you had things that were artistic masterpieces. 
and were also popular at the same time, and I think that divide has grown over time. Yeah. So, like, you know, you think of, like, the... In 94, it's like, what's nominated that year? It's like a Forza Gump, mm. Pulp Fiction, yeah. Ed Wood, all of them, you know, critically acclaimed, but also... Well, at the time, $100 million is a lot of money. Like, yeah. all of them breaking... Maybe Ed Wood doesn't break $100 million, but, I mean, it, but it made, but, but, but it made decent money. money. I mean, yeah. Ed Wood made decent money. Um, Forrest <clears throat> Gump is a popular movie that is also an artistically relevant movie. Sure. And tells a good story. And it has yeah. great performances in it. So, even though personally, like, you know, as a kid, like, I thought that Pulp Fiction deserved that award. Um, there's no problem with Forrest Gump winning, but then... Sure, I feel I can't same. remember what was nominated the same year as Crash, but there was something that year that I really felt deserved Best Picture, and I, I wish I could remember. What was that, 04? Maybe. I can't remember. I don't know. Either. I was still working for Regal Cinemas at the time, so... Yeah. Um, but Crash is just such a bad movie. It is. And the only reason it wins is because these people want to feel like they're making some sort of statement about their social relevance and how they're bringing, they're shining light on a problem that the majority of the world recognizes anyway. Or maybe not. I mean, no, I'm mean, sure but, we're living in a world where I think that we realize that's probably not true. But back then but, I kind of thought that like, well, duh, you know, well, well, so, I, mean, I, I think a large part of the audience gets the point, you know, I already knew the point. Like we were talking about this, you know, privately a few weeks ago. And I actually thought of it like after we finished the conversation, Crash, to me, has the emotional weight of, um, like, Volcano or Dante's Peak. I think it's Volcano, where at the end she's like, look, they're all gray. Like, when the ash is falling down after uh-huh. they've, like, beaten the volcano, right? For some reason, when you said Volcano at Dante's Peak, for some reason I thought you were talking about Joe versus the volcano for a second. No, that is okay. a lot more emotional weight than... <laughs> I was really confused. Than any of those movies. Yeah. But, like, that's what Crash is. Crash is, like, a really crass heavy-handed, you know, way of saying, like, oh, my God, racism is bad, and people right. people are racist, and right. or are bigots, or however you want to, like... But are ultimately, deep down, everybody has the... Uh, is good in their... Yeah, everyone's, their everyone's just a person, just right. trying to yeah. live a life. Sure. And, you know, whether you're, like, living in Los Angeles or running from, like, a city-destroying volcano, then I guess... Yeah. We'll have to talk about that someday. I don't want to do it right now, but it's, like... Gut instinct. Is Paul Haggis a hack? I think that he's kind of distanced himself from that movie. Has he? Yeah. yeah. I don't think he has... He's pretty much distanced himself from everything in his life, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, what else has he done? I can't even think of anything else. Yeah, I just mean it. I was just making a Scientology joke. But I mean, um, uh, well, he left them. But uh, I mean, that movie is definitely the work of a hack. It's definitely not yeah. a well-written or well-directed right. film. I mean, there's some I'm decent I'm trying to think of like what he's but... done that I actually like, think is like really good, and I can't think of a lot. Yeah, he's not somebody that sits forefront in my mind ever. Yeah, right. so. <clears throat> Sorry, Paul Haggis. <laughs> okay, I don't want to spend too long on that. I just want to get your general input on it, just because it was a current news item. Um, <clears throat> I think it's a silly fucking idea that yeah. is completely pointless. Um, it won't change anything, but honestly, it's what you're talking about, Crash. I think it's another way of virtue signaling. Mm. Um, and that's what they're going to end up doing with this award. I bet you any amount of money it's going to be something that... Um, I mean, I would imagine, like, they would have a chance to just be in a Pixar movie every year, too. Yeah, I can see that happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, they have the animated category, though. Like the, yeah, that's maybe true. Maybe they can get those awards yeah, it's out a, there. It's a dual, dual Oscar winner. Right, right. Mm. But what happens if you have a popular movie and then 
it actually is one of those ones that breaks through. Is it going to win, like, you know, if it wins Best Picture and it ends up being popular, doesn't it automatically have to also be outstanding achievement in popular film yeah, as well? I guess. Like, I don't know how... I don't know how the voting works. Like, yeah, I don't right. Know. I don't even know what the criteria is for that category. Like, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very bizarre. And like you said, box office. Kind or of it'll just be all like Marvel, you know, Disney movies for like a decade. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A Star Wars movie. Sure. Well, maybe right. not a Star Wars movie anymore, but no. like a Marvel movie. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. An actual Disney film. Okay, so let's move on to the top five list for this week. Um, you know, top five best horror movies involving hauntings. Um... <clears throat> One of the things that I wanted to clarify with you um, is, can you try to define this category a little bit? And the reason I ask that is because um, what's counted here? Like, I'm assuming, like, you know, like, Bouldergeist count is, like, hauntings? Like, you know, I mean, this is getting into maybe, like, nerdy um, yeah. paranormal stuff to some degree, but it's like, you know... Possession, you know, I'm assuming doesn't count in any of this. No, nah, to me it's going to involve, like, the dead somehow reaching out to the living in okay. some way. Either, I think, you know, I think people can be haunted. Like, where someone's being personally and specifically haunted by events. I think that a place can be haunted. Mm-hmm. So, I think that some place can, whatever, like, hold the memories of the past and those things affect the people that live in it. But... Hauntings to me are always where someone who's alive is being directly affected by someone from beyond the grave. Okay. The other thing that crossed my mind here is, um, like, ghost stories are, throughout the course of history, really prevalent. Like, why do you think that the idea of hauntings and ghosts, like, kind of grasped, um like human beings so much in I some mean, ways it's at the core of i think human existence to question what happens after we die and i think that i think that people take this is going to sound like really obvious but i think that people take death to be incredibly uh, an incredibly personal thing both the death of loved ones and others and also the fear of their own death or the uncertainty of their own death even if they're not afraid of it and i mean it's like the one thing that no one can ever, or to this point in our, you know, human existence, I've ever been able to prove is what happens after you die. You know, and the human brain, I think, works in a way where, I don't know, like you can see things or feel things that maybe aren't necessarily there or true, but you interpret them in a way that kind of lends credence to the idea of ghosts without getting too much into like the metaphysical or whether you believe in a ghost or not. Sure. You know, even from just like an artistic standpoint, you know, like Shakespeare, like with, with Hamlet and whatnot, like the idea of the ghosts basically being like the, the deus ex machina that like drives the story and like, you know, drives Hamlet forward in a lot of ways with, you know, ghost of his father. Like it's, it's just a really powerful storytelling element. And I think that, I think there's some people that don't find horror or like fascination in like the undead or like the ghosts basically, yeah. but I think the majority of people, like, it, it evokes, like, a visceral reaction in them to think about something coming back from the dead. Right. I think that's why zombie movies are so popular and, like, vampires and whatnot mm-hmm. at different times is because the idea of something living, dying, 
and then still being able to come and do something to you as a living sure, person. Death isn't the end. Is yeah. something that appeals to people. And the idea that these things can do you harm, which in in most movies involving haunting is you know is is the centerpiece that they don't have your best interests at heart. It's not right. about them reaching back to like help you or lead you. It's about them reaching back to harm you because they're jealous of your life or they died a violent death or whatever. Right. Um, one of the things that I also, when I was kind of going through these movies and I started looking at the box office list was there's not a lot of them that are really great mainstream successes. No. Um, which is, which is odd considering how prevalent ghost lore is in the culture. Um, the, the, the movies don't seem to do that well. Um, there's a couple ghost movies that had some, like, like a modicum of success. I mean, if you count Poltergeist. Poltergeist was pretty successful. Not that Poltergeist is on this list. Um, the American version of The Ring had a pretty good box office. Yeah, but basically it's like The Ring. Um, the Others had a good box office. Yeah, I mean, there's like that, What Lies Beneath was on, is pretty high on the we're list, not, actually. We're not, we're not, we're not going to talk about What Lies Beneath. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, like, um, Sixth Sense. Six cents, yeah. You know, has Forgot a strong box Blair Witch. Office, but, um, yeah. Um, Blair Witch, yeah. I mean, there's like five of them, but when you go look at horror movies, like, they're not... The hauntings and ghosts really aren't that high. Like, uh, But horror uh, movies in general aren't necessarily really good performers traditionally at the box office. I mean, for the, for the most part, horror movies, like, for the majority of, like, film have been relegated to, you know, B-movies. They're... No matter what the like the subgenre of horror you're talking about, you know they're shown in like cheap like dollar cinemas or they're direct to video. You know, I mean, so there's a lot of like a lot of really good horror movies that never had the chance to gain box office success. And then there's things like you know some of my favorite horror movies like Texas Chainsaw, The Exorcist. Like a lot of those movies that were commercially released were released in a time before the megaplex existed. Sure. So you're talking about where you might have your local movie theater only has two screens, and if you've got the choice between showing Exorcist Two and <clears throat> I don't know Temple of Doom, like you're probably going to show Temple of Doom and draw everybody in, as opposed to showing you know what's what's honestly like a really good horror movie. So, right. um, I don't know. Like it's it's strange. Maybe people, but the Insidious movies do well, and they're about ghosts. And um, there's something demonic about them. Uh, I mean, yeah, because they bring stupid religious shit into it, but it's still ostensibly, like, those movies are ghost movies. I mean, they take place in a quote-unquote ghost dimension, and the Conjuring movies have ghosts in them, and they're popular, and, um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, horror has definitely become much more acceptable to admit that you like Mm -hmm. in the past 20 years, since, like, Scream, really. Um, but for the most part, you know, horror was the sweaty guy alone in his room, like, Watching somebody carve somebody else up and seeing some boobs. I mean, it's not right. like there was a lot of, yeah, a lot of like critical acclaim given ever to horror movies, except for stuff like I don't know, The Innocence or The Haunting or, you know, stuff from like the fifties. So I don't know. Okay. I, I I would not have guessed. I, you know, I would have guessed that ghost movies probably don't rank very high in terms of box office because it really is like slasher movies. I would think that probably hold the highest. 
Or zombie movies, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'd have to go look at the list again. It's also really difficult, I think, to do a good ghost movie because so much that's scary about ghosts depends more on your imagination. And that's not really... That's really difficult, I think, to project in terms of film is something that like triggers your imagination in a way where it becomes where your suspension of disbelief is strong enough where it actually becomes scary or effective and it doesn't just look cheap or corny right that's the problem i have with the james wan movies like the insidious and the conjuring is i think they're solid films in a lot of ways and i think they have decent ideas but i feel like when you see the ghost the ghost has way too much weight to it Mm-hmm. Where it feels like just a person in a costume. Like, that, the scary nun is just not scary to me. Like, there's nothing horrifying about that because it's just, it's like basically like Marilyn Manson in drag is what it looks like. Like, it just makes me kind of laugh. <laughs> right, right. You know, yeah. like, it's not a scary Like, thing. you're going to, like, a haunted hayride or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe not, like, not even because you're in the comfort of a home or you're, like, surrounded right. by other people. Yeah. You're not out in the woods or something. So, I don't know. Right. Um... <clears throat> Just generally speaking, before we get into the list, what do you think makes a good ghost movie compared to a bad ghost movie? I think that the ghosts have to feel disconnected from reality. Again, like I think there needs to be an etherealness to either what's implied is something that you never see, like that you don't actually ever see like the ghost, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. or when you do, it's done in a way where it's otherworldly. Um, I think that it has to have, I think there has to be a sense of sadness mixed in a good ghost movie. Like, I don't think a ghost movie can just be outright, like, jump scares or scary. There has to be, like, some sorrow to it because I think that having that, that emotional connection to, like, the overall story draws you more into being, like, open to being scared by the things when you see it. Um... I don't know. It's hard to say. the 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 soundtrack and like the ambient noise has to be really well done. Mm. Um, I think there has to be a lot of restraint shown by the director in a good ghost movie to linger on scenes and hold shots and not like jump and cut and be fran- frantic about it. Because I think that like you look at something like Thirteen Ghosts, which like visually has some interesting stuff to it, but is not a good movie. Because it's almost like like a carnival ride. Like, it's so fast and so jumpy and so, I don't know, just, it just doesn't... So it relies on the, almost like the jump cut or the jump scare, maybe, like, ghost movies that do that. I don't really think of them as being, like, I mean, they they can be scary. Like, you know, you can, like, jump or, jump scares can always get you. Sure. But I, I think that a ghost movie has to be more finely crafted than a typical horror movie. In a lot of ways, because it's building upon something that really, you can believe a serial killer exists, even if it's like an immortal serial killer, like Michael Myers or something, or even Freddy Krueger, that's got a lot of like, like overt supernatural things in it. Like it still is based on the idea that this is like a pedophile child killer. Um, so you can be a little looser in how you direct, but with ghost movies, if you're not, I I think if you're not deliberate in the way you film the movie, I think that it kind of falls apart because it is more about what's out of the corner of your eye and what's off the camera as it is what's like you're seeing in the camera. Like that's almost like the scarier thing is like what's in that corner or what's right out of frame that I don't see that's like waiting there to come up and, you know, interact with the 
the living actors in the movie. That's why The Others is such an... And the Others isn't on this list either, but that's why The Others is so effective because most of it takes place like in a very small environment of that house. And it's more about what's outside of the house and what's in the room that you don't see right. that makes it scary to when you get to the reveal that they're the ghosts. <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's much more effective because you've been waiting the whole time to see the ghosts and by the time you realize it's them, you know, you've kind of gained some sympathy for them as characters and it makes it like a little scarier. Right. Okay, good. Um, so let's go ahead and get um, started on the list itself. Um, so the first movie that you have on your list is the 1970 version of Scrooge, Mm -hmm. um, directed by Ronald Neum, um, starring um, the great Albert Finney. And pretty much nobody else. Yeah, Alec Guinness is in it. Yeah, he's Marley's ghost, but like Um, for the most part, it's just all like British. Sure. Character actors. So overall, um, it has a 75% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 83% from audience. Um, Can you describe... Um, just briefly, like, you know, um, does it follow the Christmas yeah. carol pretty closely? I mean... There, I, yeah. There's very few, um, I think, adaptations of the Christmas carol that veer yeah. far from it. Um, it's a good traditional retelling of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, the music is a little hokey at times. Like, it's not... Right, because this is a musical. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> um, the musical bits, there's some decent songs in it. Um, the thank you very much is the one that like immediately springs to mind, uh, that's played twice, like once ironically and once, you know, sincerely at the end of the movie. Um, Finney does an amazing job playing Scrooge, um, just in his, like, his, like, vitriol and his bitterness and his initial, like, inability to believe that ghosts are real. You know, it's just like a, whatever, like a bit of indigestion or whatever that he calls it. Um... It's got a real, it's got a really, really interesting way of like, I mean, so this is one where like the ghosts do feel like kind of like weighty, like they feel like they're there, but it does a good job of, I think balancing Scrooge's uncertainty about whether or not these things are actually occurring and what the import of seeing the spirits are with actually like filming it like a real horror movie. I mean, it's. It's all on sets, you know, and it's all very, like, the meticulously produced, like, British productions of the 60s and 70s. But, um, really good, like, horror elements to it, like, mixed with the traditional story. Um, in terms of, like, the entire, like, Christmas Carol, whatever, like, all the films that encompass that story. Um, I think it's probably the closest to being... Maybe not the harshest, but it's definitely, like, the most horrific in the way that it shows scenes and the way that it builds, like, Scrooge's, like, growing certainty that the way he's lived his life is going to lead to his damnation, including a pretty brilliant, like, scene where he's actually in hell at the end of the movie after um, Christmas Future has, like, pushed him into his grave or whatever, or scared him into his grave. Um, and there's some really great adaptations of Christmas Carol. I mean, I, I, I love that story in general. Like it's one of my favorite, mm. um, traditional like stories from my, my childhood. Um, you know, Scrooge is a good, is, is funny and it's a good movie and like Muppet Christmas Carol is good. Um, but this one just, it, it has the right balance of like telling the story and still being like effective and scary and actually building your sympathy towards Scrooge and how he became who he is while still like having you 
despise Scrooge and not understand like why he can't see the error of his ways until the end. You mentioned horror elements. Um, could you talk a little bit more? Like, what, what, what specifically? Like, are there any scenes or anything that stand out to you that's that kind of like uh, uh, explain what you mean by like the horror elements being strong in this? So there's a few. Uh, number one, again, because it's filmed on sets, they they do a really good job of making, you know, whatever that is, like a nineteenth century London feel dreary and dim, and claustrophobic and dirty and. Scrooge's house particularly, you know, I mean, from this, the opening scenes, like when he's in the counting house with, um, uh, what's his name, Tiny Tim's dad, um, Bob Cratchit, um, which is really, like, dark, and it, like, it feels cold, and then he goes home, and the walls are gray with crumbling paint, and there's, you know, spider webs, and it just feels, like, run down and dilapidated, and then when he sees Marley for the first time, the Alec Guinness performances, Jacob Marley, Marley has what to me for a long time to find like what a ghost looks like, which is like the bandages around the head, um, the heavy chains and the way they film it. Like, again, like there's weight to him because you feel like he's heavy with like the burden of his sins or whatever in the chains, but they, the way they film him floating and the way they film the chains, like floating up around him. Like it really does. It's a really effective way to present like, you know, a man that's, that's dead and that's just forced to wander the earth forever. Um, the scene at the, like, the whole entire end of the movie when he's with the Ghost of Christmas Future, who's, you know, the cloaked, shrouded figure that doesn't speak, and that's showing him, like, everyone's celebrating his death, and that Tiny Tim has died, and Bob Cratchit's, like, broken, basically, by this death, and then, really, like, when they send him to hell, I mean, that's something, it's almost, like, surreal, that whole scene, when they have him, like, He's basically going to go work for the devil for all of eternity as in like the counting and they're dragging this chain and you know Marley's chains are like like impressive and big when they introduce him but then Scrooge's chain is like you know like tens of yards long and made of this huge like thick like iron and it seems like really weighty and it's just again it's it's a children's story I understand for the most part you know I mean like kind of whatever like morality play and it really is like as a musical a kind of like a whimsical, but the way they tell this whimsical, I mean, it's not a whimsical story, but like the way they tell it just has like a lot of weight and a lot of gravity. And Albert Finney is amazing in it as Scrooge. I mean, one of maybe my favorite Scrooge performance, I think out of so all. If of them. you had to talk like, you know, about the major strengths, let's just say like two or three, like, you know, is that performance one of those major strengths? Of the yeah. Movie? I mean, he's definitely like the, the, he's the best part of that film and mm-hmm. him, swinging wildly between bitter and old and you know telling the there's in the beginning there's the men that are coming to him and trying to solicit donations for the poor and he's saying that that's what poor houses are for they should just go there and if they die then they can decrease the surplus population like one of my favorite lines and like from my childhood is in film um and then when he's in like christmas present when he's like watching his nephew and like this party and he's getting drunk and he's into it and he just i don't know it's it's just a really brilliant performance um i guess it's just a very british performance in a lot of ways but um so there's that uh the set design is fantastic mm-hmm. again like it feels like industrial revolution era london and it feels like s- sooty and dingy and dirty and 
like you feel the poverty of the people that are in it. Um, and then the ghosts are just really all well designed. Um, there's a nice balance between all of them where it's like Christmas past is like, you know, beautiful, but cold and mournful. And then Christmas present is like warm and gregarious and Christmas future is like, you know, dark. And obviously it's like just basically the Grim Reaper. Marley, again, probably the most outstanding, like not only because, um, Guinness's performance is so good, but just the way that it's filmed, the way that it looks, it's, it's, it's really well done. Um, so looking at what critics have to say about this, um, the consensus of the negative reviews, um, the first claim is that, uh, it seems like it's not serious enough, that mm. it's almost like too kind of carefree and childish at times. Mm. Maybe. I mean, again, it's, it's a musical and I think that it's kind of unnecessary for it to be a musical. I think if you take the musical numbers out, it's still a really strong movie. Yeah. And then maybe having like kind of those like jokey musical moments is not like it takes some weight away, but there's definitely some really like weighty like scenes in that movie. Mm -hmm. It's not, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a Christmas movie, so it can't be like entirely dour the entire time. I don't know. Well, what the other main criticism is that it seems like a lot of people that were negative on the movie did not like the musical numbers. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, this is a movie that has a lot of nostalgic um, importance to me, you know, mm-hmm. and I've I've watched this movie pretty much every Christmas for, I would say, the majority of the 41 years of my life. I mean, I've, I've honestly probably seen this movie like 37 or 38 times. Mm. Um, so maybe that kind of like gives me rose-colored glasses. Um, but I've seen, I, I would say I've seen at least like seven or eight adaptations of A Christmas Carol. And definitely this one is always my favorite. Um, and there's some other good ones, some ones that I enjoy. Again, one of my favorite stories from like my childhood, but I think this movie is the best combination of, it doesn't take you too low where it's just depressing to watch at a time when you're supposed to be like happy, but it also doesn't go too high where it becomes like trite or completely like, I don't know. Like there's, there's enough weight to it that it's, it feels like it. it's important to watch, I think. And I just, I don't know, I, yeah. I love everything about it. Cinematography, too. Like, it's it's brilliantly filmed. Like, the way that it, a lot of natural light, um, and a lot of use of, like, gaslight and, like, like the sun and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels cold. Like, it feels, it feels like Christmas, but it feels like a dark Christmas, kind of, like, until the very end when everything's, like, when he's like buying like the Christmas goose and buying all the toys for the kids and stuff. And, you know, and it really, it, it, it does a good job of showing his progression from being like a miserly old man to being almost like reborn as this like young, like young seeming spry, like old man that loves everyone. I don't want to go into the weeds on this at all, (laughs) but just, I was just thinking for the first time about Christmas Carol, because it's not something I think about, tend to think about very often. Is it a critique is it a Christian critique on utilitarianism? Oh, maybe. I don't know. I mean... Uh, is that what's is that what he's doing there? Everything that Dickens wrote, I feel like, is a critique on... Sure, absolutely. I don't yeah, know. like the conditions of... Commercialism and... Working conditions. Yeah, and like, like placing, yeah, right. placing the value of things and money over the value of like yeah, human existence. Sure. And yeah. done in like 7,000 pages because he was paid by the word or whatever, but... <laughs> 
Um, Hard times. Whatever. So's Tale of Two Cities, but it takes you like seven years to read because it's Great like, expectations, but too. Yeah, I, I actually love Great Expectations. Yeah. Another sort of like ghostly book with like Miss Haversham. Sure, and stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, like Dickens at his heart was a Christian and yeah. he believed in like right. the Christian goodness of man and the redemption yeah. of people. And I think it's it, it's a good story for yeah. when you're talking about the birth of the of Christ during right. like Christmas that That's the parallel. Yeah, yeah that's that, that Scrooge that's is like basically Yeah. Like in a very I don't know, subtle way, like going through those stages and being reborn again. Right. So maybe that's kind of crass. Like I, I wish I hadn't made me think of it like that because I just, <laughs> I just like Christmas Carol. But it's what I'm here for. Yeah, know? thanks. Um, <laughs> Ruined my life. <laughs> okay, let's move on to number four real quick. Um, much more modern. Um, well, I guess we're still talking 13 years ago now. But um, uh, number four, uh, you have uh, Cairo, um, better known in America as Pulse, but it's the Japanese version directed by. Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Mm. Um, it is a uh, critics have it a seventy four percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Audience ooh, has it much lower at sixty percent. Yeah, I can see that. Um, so, do you want to explain a little bit about what the movie is and why initially you put it on the list? So it's it's a ghost movie where I guess the internet is haunted in yes. a lot of ways, like. There's a group of people that, a group of, like, research students that have a friend that commits suicide. And they start to see, um, there's a website that's like, do you want to see a ghost? And you go to this website and it just shows you, like, an empty room. And these people start to obsessively watch it. And what happens is that the ghosts that are on the web kind of, like, start to infect, like, these empty spaces that these people are in. Um, because the movie shows people as being like disconnected and not able to have like, um, human relations. So in a lot of ways it's kind of like prescient. Um, but I guess in Japan, like what's, what's happening here with like social media and stuff, those sort of things were happening in Japan before. Um, so the ghosts eventually start to infect a lot of places. Um, there's a kid who's like a Luddite can't access the internet. So he's kind of immune to it. And he's sort of maybe the protagonist. Um, falls in love with this girl and they try to escape it and just in general like the ghosts start to like infect like the rest of the world to the point where when they infect you you basically just like turn to ash kind of and disappear um and then you become a i guess i don't know if you become a ghost or whatever but you're gone um very bleak uh probably as much a like a a post-apocalyptic or a pop apocalyptic movie as much as a ghost movie um like incredibly ambitious in that respect that it's not where most ghost movies are, are small stories about like individuals being affected by like the afterlife. Like this is in a lot of ways, like a far ranging and like large movie where like everyone is affected by the afterlife and the, the afterlife is definitely trying to kill you because it wants to have like what it once had and wants to take your place. So really good critique on like technology and, just the breakdown of social interactions. Um, some pretty brilliant filming of, like, ghost scenes and just the way that it films the supernatural. I mean, it's like some really effective effective stuff. And kind of the 60% by audiences, I would think, maybe is because it's sort of ambiguous at the end. And it does not give you, like, a happy ending at all. Like, it's maybe... 
Well, I didn't read any audience reviews necessarily, but um, one of the, the the common critiques among critics were um, there's a lot of pacing issues. Ultimately, it was boring. I think that the middle half of the movie was really boring. I don't know. I mean, I... That was the common critique. I hate that critique, especially when movies are, like, about building, like, ambiance and about building tension, because it really is just that, like, it's, it's society's inability to react to what is inherently, like, a world-ending plague. And that's kind of what that middle of the movie is, is, like, people slowly just succumbing to this thing instead of being, like, rallying against it or shutting down. Like, people just kind of, kind of go towards it. And even the protagonist's girlfriend just sort of is, like, drawn into it where she just, like, allows herself to be, like, sucked in. Um, I don't know. I mean, I... I don't really, like, I, I can be bored in movies, but I don't find myself bored a lot of times as long as I f- can find strengths in other parts of the movies. Like, I'm okay with a, like, a lull in action at certain points. How long is it? Did you write that down? Like, I, like I did two know. hours and 20 minutes? Yeah, it's something, it's, it's something like that, yeah. It's a little long for a horror movie, but yeah. not, like, overly long. It's not like, you know, like, Inland Empire, like, three hours or whatever. Um... I mean, one of the things with Pulse, to me, is... You know, I I grew up with stuff like, you know, bootleg videos and going to comic book shows and conventions and, like, buying, like, these little, like, CD VHS tapes that had horror movies from overseas that, you know, weren't commercially released over here. And, you know, Pulse's was at the, sort of like after the initial wave of those, the Japanese horror that came in, um like, the late 90s, so... Uh, you know, Ringu, um, uh, Juan, uh, Dark Water, The Eye. There's all these movies around that time that are these Asian horror films that have similar tropes. Like the, the pale, like, kid, the woman with the hair over her face, like the ominous noises. And I felt that Pulse, in a lot of ways, kind of changed what a ghost was like it wasn't about just that like it's more about and not to say there isn't like those elements in it sort of but the ghosts are more menacing and they're less there's less they're less explainable like you don't necessarily understand it's not just like you know here's this haunted videotape or here's this haunted house and this is the thing that haunts that place it's like dozens of different ghosts all over the place and they're coming into your space through the internet. They're not, they didn't die there, but they're living their afterlife in your place where you were once alive. And that's, it's pretty, it's pretty terrifying concept and it's really well done. Like Kurosawa is a pretty brilliant horror director and he's, he's done some really good movies that I like a lot. Like what else? Uh, Cure specifically, I think is really good. Um, Crap, what is that other one? There's, I, it, it's escaping me now, but there's another one that's, um, uh, just, he's, he's really good at, like, filming things. It, it's very Lynchy in a lot of ways in the yeah. way he films, which is that he finds, he's able to show you horror in an area that you wouldn't normally feel would be, like, a horrific thing. So, like, he can show you a sunlit scene 
and infuse like elements of like unease into it yeah where it doesn't have to be just like a dark house or you know like just seeing at the end because it's been a while since i've seen this you're seeing like a factory at the end yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that's like, where they try to flee cause yeah they're yeah to and from. it's like that's in the daylight yeah, yeah and actually like really soft like warm right daylight because yeah. it's kind of like um kind of like infused with like the like the ambient dust and whatnot yeah that, that particularly sticks out in my head in terms of like the ability to make daylight horrific is yeah. always something that stands out to me when I see it. Yeah, and it's um, it's it's impressive when it happens. Yeah. But the the scariest scene in the movie to me, like the the scene that I always think about when I think about this movie, is um, the guy goes into almost like a like an alcove or a closet or something, and there's that's, the the woman the... like kind of like almost swimming at him, like this woman ghost and her ankle like collapses on her and her like shoulder dips. And it's just like this unnatural, really painful looking motion. And she's still like swimming at him and just like the slowness of her movements and like how almost like marionette like it is that she's moving. And then he does like, I think like the most like ridiculous trope, you know, like you think of as a kid, like where if I hide, like if I can't see it, Right. It doesn't exist. Like, he right. hides behind this couch. Yeah. And he's looking under, and she's not there anymore, and then he looks up, and she's over him, and it's just yeah, really well done, and... Isn't there another sequence? I, I, I have this memory sticking out of somebody being on the computer in a dark room, and it's just, like, the light from, like, around the desk or something like that is, like, what kind of illuminates the yeah, there's area a couple surrounding of it. Like that. And, like, somebody, and, like, there's a ghost that comes out of the shadows, kind of, so in there's the darkness. So, early in the movie, the, I don't know if it's the guy that starts it, but, like, kind of the group of protagonists that are, like, not of the protagonists, the group of characters in the beginning, the research mm-hmm. team, um, when they go to investigate their friend's death, like, they go there and... You know, it, it is it is similar to that. Like, I, I think you described it pretty much exactly. Yeah. But all he's left behind is this stain of himself on the wall, like, where he hung himself. Yeah. Um, and you do see him, like, appear. I don't know. Like, I... Again, like, we were talking about earlier, just in general. Like, I, I think that what's out of the corner of your eye and what's just out of focus is sometimes a lot more terrifying than just being, like, immediately confronted with something. And I feel like... Pulse does a fantastic job of always leaving the thing slightly out of focus and slightly off center so that it does feel like it's this, it feels like the world is like increasingly like dying. And the way that he films like the scenes, there's a really good scene later on when um, the protagonist and the girl that he's in love with go to um, like an arcade, like a traditional Japanese arcade and there's nobody in it. And just them going there and they're on their college campus and there's nobody there. And he does a good job of showing like large groups of people, like in the beginning in, you know, inhabited places, smaller groups, smaller groups, smaller groups until finally there's just no one left. And there's some hokey um, CGI effects, like with an airplane crashing and stuff later in the movie Mm -hmm. that kind of just, I guess you have to forgive because of, you know, it's early 2000s, but for the most part, like, everything is very practical and feels very real, and it's just, it, it's got a really good weight to it, and it's got a good, um, just a good, like, ambiance to the whole movie. There's a weakness to the movie, what would you say it is? It probably is a little too long. Yeah. Um, again, like, the, the plane crash CGI is really bad. Um, 
the fact that I don't mind a movie not having like a clean cut ending, like where you know what happened to everybody and you, right. you don't know what happened. Yeah. And honestly, I don't know if he ever like envisioned a sequel or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it, it feels like the end of a first part that would then continue. I remember thinking that. Um, yeah. And so maybe that's a weakness. I mean, yeah. I, I really enjoy that ending. And I like the idea yeah. that, like, these people are on this boat in the ocean. Because what happens in the end is the protagonist and the girl um, get on an ocean-going freighter with only a couple people crewing it. And they go out because they're going to try and go somewhere else and see if, like, they're safe elsewhere. <clears throat> and the protagonist kind of just sits down and dies for the most part. Um, even though like he's kind of fought against it for the whole time, but it's because he goes into a room and gets infected basically, um, during the factory part. Um, you know, so maybe that's maybe a weakness, maybe not, I guess it depends on how you look at it. So do you think out of, what they call him? J-Har? J-Har. Um, out of all the J-Har movies of that time period, like I would assume that is, is this the best one to you? I don't know. It's the most effective, okay. and I think it's the it takes the biggest risks. Mm. Um, just from like a pure like, what's the best? Uh, probably Dark Water or Ringu mm-hmm. are better movies than okay. this. Yeah, they're definitely like a they're they're tighter stories with with resolution. Like right. they tell a story, um, but. In terms of just what sticks with me the most, I think about Pulse more when I think about ghost movies than I do those two other movies, which are also ghost movies. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, like, they're both, like, really good movies yeah. in their own right, mm-hmm. but I there's just... It, it, it's mostly Kurosawa's directing style. Like, he's just yeah. really good, and I really love the way that he films things, and, you know, I just... I don't know. Okay. All right, let's go ahead to um, number three. Three, um, which is Lady in White from 1988, Frank Lelogia directed, um, starring Lucas Haas. Lucas Haas. Yeah. Um, it um, is a 67 percent by uh, from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 69 percent uh, from the audience. Um, so, do you want to just briefly explain the movie and give your um, strengths of it? Uh, so, Lucas Haas is eight or nine or something. Mm-hmm. Um, living in a small town, um, gets tricked into staying in a cloakroom one night, um, witnesses the ghostly murder of this young girl, but he can't see who the murderer is. Like, it's like a reenactment of the girl's death, basically. Um, gets attacked and strangled to unconsciousness, but then is saved. Um, and then finds out that there's actually been, like, nine other child murders over the course of, like, a decade that have happened, and this girl was, like, one of the first... Um, so it then becomes a ghost story, but also like kind of a crime thriller where he, him and his friend are trying to figure out maybe brother him and this kid, Gino, were trying to figure out, um, who killed the girl, like how she died. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of the ghost element to it because he's kind of haunted by her and, um, realizes that it is, uh, like, it's a family friend, which is really, really creepy, like, that realization. Um, and eventually, you know, the guy gets his comeuppance. Um, he solves the mystery, and he's, like, saved. Um, but, ostensibly, like, a, another movie that's, like, made for children. Um, not, like, an adult, like, horror movie 
in the traditional sense. Um, really good use of music. Uh, the fact that the killer is whistling, have you ever seen Dream Walking? And that's like... Yeah, I remember that. That cool. melody is like repeated throughout and like it's... it. It's one of my favorite things in movies in general when you take a song that is like kind of like lighthearted or sort of, I don't know, like almost like inconsequential, you know, like a pop song and you play it in a way that infuses weight to it and makes it like much more sinister. Like um, Fallen? Fallen. Uh, another good uh, analogy is um, uh, Homicide. Oh, yeah. Hom- yeah. With um, uh, Hello Stranger. With the yeah. Adina Watson murder. Oh, oh, you mean the television show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's good, yeah. The, um, the, the Bale of Strings sequel, too. Yeah, so, like, that's really effective. Um, Children in Peril, to me, is always, like, much scarier than adults in peril because there's a lot, it feels like a lot less, I mean, like, fair, maybe, that, like, an innocent is being, like, tormented or whatever. Um, the fact that it's this, like, close friend of the family that's this child murderer... Um, I mean, I saw this movie when I was a little kid. I was probably like 10. No, I was probably like 12 when I saw this movie. Um, so back then, like, you know, we were being told that you were going to get like kidnapped and molested and murdered like every day. So the idea that like, that's what it's playing on is, you know, it is like a child murder by somebody who is a family friend, which is always what you're told to watch out for. Um, you're right. That's at the height of it. 1988. Like that's like, yeah. Uh, that I, I think that that makes it a little scarier. Um, I don't know. Like it's 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 a really good mystery. Um, it's really well told. I think. Um, again, like it's it, it's it's told over the course of a couple of months. I think it takes place from like the initial prank is on Halloween, and the end of the movie like. It's like the first snowfall, so it maybe is like, like fall to fall to like yeah. early, like at the end of fall, like beginning of winter. Right. Um. Yeah. It's it's it takes place in New York, I think, like upstate New York. So maybe like starts snowing earlier, but then again, like a very short period of time. Yeah, yeah. Um. It also plays into kind of some like profiling bias against like the guy that's the janitor that ends up getting like falsely accused because he was just there and. Mm-hmm. And then he ends up getting like murdered by like a, the mother of one of the women that the murder the mother of one of the children that was murdered. Um, so there's some social commentary to it. Sure. Um, for being like a movie that was made like ostensibly for children or for like young adults, like it, it definitely is a, you know has some mature themes and it handles them pretty well. Um, <clears throat> you let me borrow this, right? Probably. You have, I own it on you DVD. Have, yeah, you have it on DVD. Yeah, okay. That's not... Because I watched it... Much, it's like, oh, yeah, but, but it's like I watched it... Um, Oh, that's been 13 years. Do you realize probably, that? Probably, yeah. Um, yeah, that's when I had that folklore class. Uh-huh. That I was, uh, um, it's actually... It, it's based on local folklore from that region. Like, the, mm-hmm. the Lady in White is like... I don't... Like, Rochester, maybe, or something? New York, yeah, I've right, seen YouTube videos. Um, there's, like, some folklore about a woman that, like a ghostly woman that wanders looking for like her murdered child or something. Mm-hmm. And that's, huh. that, that's what like they drew the influence from if I remember correctly. But, um, yeah, it's, it, so it plays into that really well too. Like the local legends and yeah. the haunted, like the haunted house that nobody wants to go to because they're afraid of it. And then the aunt is like, 
like haunting the house as like a living person because she can't get over the death of her sister and her right. her niece. Um, Mrs. Havisham. Yeah, it, it is yeah. kind of like that. I mean, she lives in like this dilapidated home that's just yeah. surrounded by like the trinkets of the past. Is and, that Mona from Who's the Yeah, that's Mona okay, from yeah, Who's the Boss. Yeah. Yeah. I always think of that movie as the Mona movie. Yeah. In Weirdo Lucas House. Yeah. Big fucking Mona's a bad um, The common critique reading you know dozen or more negative reviews um I'll give you an example that the um horror based elements com- fall completely flat according to David Nazaire at um real film reviews um another critic said that um it's atmosphere at the expense of shivers and frights so how would you respond to the idea that the horror elements aren't necessarily what they should be. I mean, that's... Again, it's like... The 80s were maybe the best time for movies that were made for pre-teens and early adolescents, where they didn't talk down to you, and they could be about more than just one thing. And I don't... I mean, there's some parts in Lady in White that are genuinely creepy. Like, him being locked in that coat room and seeing, like her lifeless body like lifted up off the floor by this invisible thing that's creepy and like the scene when he's with the the friend of the family that turns out to be the killer and he knows that he's the killer and the killer knows that he knows that he's the killer i mean there's a lot of like real tension to yeah that scene. no it's a real threat at the end of that movie. um yeah. and again it's a child in peril like that's so i i don't know i mean I think with horror film critique, and I I think maybe it's gotten better over time, but especially in like the 70s and 80s, I think critics come at horror films automatically thinking there's no merit to this movie or this is completely disposable. But you can look at something like a, a good movie from, in my opinion, like the same like genre, which is like Goonies, which... It's a swashbuckling movie, but you could say, like, oh, well, there's not enough real pirates. Like, there's not enough swashbuckling. But then you kind of miss the point. You know, it's it's telling a tale from the perspective of a child, mostly. Yeah. And a child who's then grown up and is looking back on events in his life, you know, through the, the perspective of, like, the distance of time. And is remembering them in almost, like, a fanciful way. So, I don't know. Like, I... I don't know. I, I, again, I, mean, it's, uh, I realize now it's been 13 years, but... Um... I think there's something charming about, like, the style of the horror in it. Yeah, like, I agree. It's kind of like, um, oh my god, what would I say? Like, Disney gothic? Sure. Like, you know, um, it's, yeah, it's like, um, The Peanut Butter Solution is a movie that, like, some of the horror elements of that, it reminds me of something similar. This is much weird. weightier, weightier subject matter. Yeah. But, like, you know, it's like the... Like, the house in the peanut butter solution, the painting that he goes into and that house and yeah. stuff like that. Like, that house is, like, reminds me that, um, you know what this else? is not going to make it sound good. It's like, um, what's the movies that we, the Disney movies we always used to, Mr. Boogity. Oh, yeah, Mr. Boogity. Like, there's, like, elements of, like, that to me is yeah. some of, like, the ghostly stuff in this movie is, like, which I find really effective. Like, sure. And it's meant to scare children yes without being like too aggressively scary yes like it's not meant to be right friday friday i mean that's not the same thing but friday the 13th is not meant to be like 
hammer you over the head scary. Yeah. But, I don't know. Like, what were those damn... Mr. Boogity's a good... Yeah, what were yeah, those the, damn um, after school specials? Like exactly. That? So there's there's another... There's a short, like, half-hour thing. The um, What were they called? Oh, man. I can't remember now. It was on Saturdays. I think it was, like, ABC or NBC. Um, but there was one called The Red Room Riddle, which scared the, the shit out of me when I was a little kid. Yeah. And... I, I think as a child, because your imagination is much more active and your sense of reality is much less grounded, mm-hmm. that you can be more scared by the idea of things than the actuality of things. And I think that in Lady in White has a really dreamy quality to it. It really does feel yeah. like, it feels like a memory a lot of times when you're watching it. And the cinematography is soft. You know, the, the setting is perfect because it's that, like, you know, the fall, they have the, it's Halloween at the beginning, so there's, like, pumpkins and fallen leaves yeah. and, like, oranges and reds and, you know, I mean, like, when they go to the the house on the cliffs at the end, or, like, in the middle and then at the end, it's very... It's like a watercolor. Yeah, it is, it is. And it, it's filmed like that, and it's filmed yeah. very soft. Um, yeah. And it's a lot of, like, soft light and, I don't know, it's just... I think that any criticism from of an adult of this movie was is going to miss the point because it's not really made for them. And not to say that like you can't have legitimate criticism, but sometimes I think you have to like adjust your perspective when you're watching certain films and realize the audience that film was made for right. to truly appreciate whether or not there's any merit to it. You know, I can't watch Frozen as an adult and like I I enjoy that movie. But it's not made for me. Like, I have right. to look at it with almost, like, more of a sense of wonder and, you know, like, open myself to the experience of watching it. As opposed to just, like, harshly critiquing it with the jaded sensibilities of a 40-year-old man, you know. Because that's not right. made for a 40-year-old man. So. And I feel like Lady in White's the same way. No, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, Erie, Indiana used to also yeah, like, have that quality it was good. to me. Like, um... There's other, like, Tales from the Dark Side. and Right. I mean, there's actually, like, a really, like, golden age of horror-themed things from, like, the mid-80s to the early 90s. Um, where people weren't afraid of putting, like, horror elements and stuff. Yeah. Um, but also, like, fairy tale elements in a lot of ways. Right. I mean, that's what it calls upon, is, like, it really is, like, a fairy tale of this kid's youth. And yeah. he's just telling it, you know, from his own perspective as sure. an adult. It's like he stylized it in his head through the years. And, yeah. 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 Okay. Oh, if there if there's any weakness to this movie, what would it be to you? Some of the some of the stuff at the end, um not really the end, some of the stuff with the Mona, the ant character in the house is it, it looks a little hokey. Um and again, like I watched it as a kid, it was really effective as a kid. I watched it as a young adult, and it was maybe a little less effective, but I still loved it. One of maybe my, I don't know, maybe my strengths as a movie watcher, or maybe one of my weaknesses, is that I really do hold a lot of nostalgia for things. And so I can yes. overlook, like, a fault of a movie because I love it for, like, its entirety of what it's meant to me for my whole life. And, I mean, you know. I mean, I think as we continue on doing this... If anything becomes controversial, it's going to be that 
your nostalgia picks. Um, like that's what like you know people will react to. Well, eventually. that's why it's my goddamn top five and not yours. Absolutely. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to number two right now. Okay, so number two on your list is the 1980 movie by Peter Medek, The Changeling. Not to be confused with the Angelina Jolie movie from the 2000s. Um, it has uh, stars uh, George C. Scott. Um, and it is a Rotten Tomatoes score from critics of 78% and audiences of 79%, so pretty even. Um, did you want to go ahead and tell us just a little bit about the movie? So The Changeling is... Um, George C. Scott plays a concert pianist, I think is what he is, whose family, wife and daughter, are killed in a freak automobile accident, um, causes him to become depressed, so he moves into this, moves away, I think to Seattle is where it takes place, or somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, um, into this dilapidated old mansion, um, where he hopes to kind of like, like find some peace and sort of like find himself again. Um, turns out the mansion's haunted by the ghost of a little boy. Um, so, similar to Lady in White, it's sort of like a mystery in the sense that um, Scott is trying to figure out like how the boy died, um, what the what the ghost wants, because it obviously wants something. Um, kid was a, a changeling, like he was a sickly <clears throat> child that was murdered by his rich, like industrialist father. And replaced with another young boy. Um, so the father could have like a son that could take over the business. Um, turns out that the young boy grows up and becomes a state senator. And the changeling, the ghost... Or the changeling is like the senator. But the ghost of the boy is kind of looking to seek vengeance on him. So... Um, mostly... A lot of like ghostly elements. But not a lot of like overt... like things that you see it's mostly a spirit influencing like the environment um scott kind of a kind of a weird performance on scott's part um because he just seems kind of bemused most of the time by what's going on around him but then again like it makes sense from like the perspective of his character where he's just kind of trying to understand the afterlife um really well done uh really tense um, some really good, just scary moments uh, that happen in the movie. Um, well, people that know the movie, like really iconic moments too on yeah, top of it. Yeah, I sure. Mean, um, there's a scene early on, of course, with the bouncing ball like, yep. coming down the steps, and he like takes and throws it outside at first. Right? Is that right? I think so. Yeah. And then he and the comes back bouncing down the steps again and then he takes it and throws it off is it off a bridge is that right like yeah into the water or something yeah something like that and then like it comes back again um you know that's really iconic the wheelchair the wheelchair yeah up in the attic where it like turns towards him and yeah rocks and yeah it's a it's maybe one of the it's probably the most pure like haunting movie on this list because it's about the supernatural influencing the real world in, like, subtle ways. It's the stuff that, like, when you're home alone, that kind of, like, can creep you out. Like, a door, like, moving on its own. Or, like, something being somewhere else where, like, you thought you'd put something somewhere and then you find it somewhere else. It's just the idea that 
the other, like, uh, the other side or whatever can influence, you know, the, like, the actions of the world around you. Um, a really nice, like, slow burn, I think, building up to it. Um, like, it, the, the haunting stuff starts immediately, like, as soon as he moves into the house. Right. And it builds slowly. And then it turns more into almost like a murder mystery. Um, with the ghost kind of, like, driving him to basically, like, recover his bones and sort of, like, help him get his vengeance. Um, but yeah, like, like you said, some really iconic stuff. Uh, both those scenes that you talked about, um, just the fact that, again, like, what I said, like, in the beginning is that, um, Medak isn't scared to, like, hold on a scene. Right. There's not a lot of, like, jumpy cuts. It's a lot of, like, here's the dark room that the thing is coming out of, like, the wheelchair is, like, up on the, you know, the top of the stairs, the, um, some really good stuff, too, with, like, the bone, like, the nuts and bolts of, like, ghost hunting in a lot of ways, because it's got the... Really ahead of its time. Yeah, like, the automatic writing, and, um, they're recording the EVPs, and, Mm -hmm. um, just... Certainly, I mean, when I saw this when I was a child, I never saw anything like that before, the idea of recording a ghost or something, I mean, I had never... It's also interesting because it's one of the few movies where the protagonist and, you know, and George C. Scott is not afraid of the supernatural, where it's not like the ghost is haunting him. It's almost like he's a willing participant in the haunting because he really is trying to figure out what happened to this kid and trying to figure out why the spirit won't move on. And it's framed really well, I think, by the idea that he's just trying to find some validation that something good has happened to his wife and daughter, like, after their right. death. Like, that there is yeah. a meaning in, in the afterlife. and Well, he's trying to fix something. Yeah, he's like, trying to fix himself in a right. lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because he... I mean, so the, the wife and daughter are killed by an out-of-control, I think, snowplow or tractor trailer or something. Yeah. They're broken down on the flat tire on the side of the road, and he's, like, moved off to call for a tow truck, and they're playing in the snow in front of the car, and the car gets hit, and they get killed. Um, so really just like a meaningless, like, like meaningless deaths. And, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, like it, it represents what most people go through when someone passes away in their life and it's unexpected and that you can't, it's, it's difficult to reconcile like why it happened because you can't see beyond yourself that things just happen sometimes and you have to try and ascribe like a meaning or a resolution to something and right. just really well done. Um, yeah. again, I mean, highlighted by the fact that because he's a musician, he's a composer and he can't produce any music. Yeah. It's cause he's lost meaning. And I think the, him trying to figure this out and do something right is him trying to reinstill meaning in his life. I would think. Yeah. It's, it, it's one of the few movies where I, I think I remember the first time I saw this movie, I was like maybe, maybe 12 or 13. Um, and we, I didn't have a television in my room. So when I would rent movies, we used to rent movies every weekend and I was allowed to rent horror movies. And so after everyone went to bed, I would watch it on our television in in the living room. And I remember like finishing this movie and just, you know, the VCR like shuts the, the tape off and it turns to like that blue screen and just sitting there as like a little kid for like minutes with, like, the blue, like, illuminating the whole room because there was no other lights on. And just being, like, like really affected by, you know, the, the film itself. And 
I, I think it does a really good job of, of doing ambient scares where it's more about like the sound. Yeah, I was going to ask you to talk about the sound specifically. Like what's off camera. I mean, you know, the, the first time that he encounters the haunting, he's hearing like the <clears throat> the pounding of the kid getting drowned in the bathroom. Right. And he's like, you know, is it the pipes? And he investigates it. And again, one of the most ridiculous tropes in horror movies is the, the person like going towards... What's like ostensibly the danger, as opposed to just like okay, I'm sure. done, I'm 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 leaving. And then there's a scene where he's <clears throat> water's running, right? Is he doing dishes or something like that? And he turns the water off, and he continues to hear water running. Yeah, that's when he that's like when he sees the, he boy, sees in the, the boy in the bathtub yeah, right. and yeah. realizes like sort of mm-hmm. like what occurred. Um, one of the things that kind of like in hindsight bothers me about this movie, like as I get older, is even though like the state senator like, took this kid's life, basically, he didn't do it. Like, he was just a kid, and he was, you know, adopted and raised, and he hadn't, like, you know, there's nothing about, like, his life that in any way caused this kid to die. Like, it's the father that was at fault. And so, the state senator dying in the end, like, in the the inferno as the house burns up, like, he, you know, he goes into it, and he passes away. I guess maybe he dies of a heart attack. I can't remember exactly how it happened. Like, he has a heart attack yeah, at his yeah, house, like, right. because he's, like, astrally projected into the yes. the burning house or he whatever. Is, yeah. But, like, it's kind of unfair. Like, that, that, that dead kid's a dick. Sort of for, like, killing him. Like, what's what's the point? Right. Like, your bones have been recovered. You can get buried. Like, you can rest in peace. Right. And you still got to murder this old man who didn't do anything to you. <laughs> I mean, I guess that, that makes yeah. it horrific, too. Like, you know, that that's sort of, like, what makes the ring so scary. Um, and so effective is that even though, like, they've done, like, they've saved, they've basically, like, given peace to Sadako or Samara or whatever version you're talking about, like, she still is, like, vengeful and still trying to kill people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just, like, the the subtle scares in that movie, and it, it's, it's, it's a strange movie because it's something where when you watch it by yourself, yeah. it's really effective. And when you watch it with other people, well, it's especially watch it by yourself, by yourself at night, at night yes. alone. Right, like is really effective. And watching it with other people, it's almost a comedy. Like things that are scary when you're by yourself become really just kind of ludicrous when you're watching them. One one of the first times I watched it with other people, because again, it was one of my favorite horror movies. Like growing up, I was maybe like eighteen or nineteen. And, um, watched it over at, you know, our friend's house, uh, with like three or four people and they were just laughing the whole time. And I was so pissed. I was like, how are you not appreciating this movie? You assholes. But when you look at it, like it, like the wheelchair rocking by itself isn't scary when it's light out and you're with a bunch of people, but like it changes to being scary when you're alone Mm -hmm. and it actually gives you, it's really good at like forcing a sense of like palpable dread on you that these things are occurring right and because they don't have like a real visual representation of this ghost where like he's like rotting or moaning or whatever i mean it really is just this spirit like affecting the things around it that it it makes it like pretty pretty terrifying no i saw this movie probably the younger age than you even because my dad really liked it and I saw it like a few times when I was probably like seven or eight and it scared the living hell out of me when I was a kid yeah um 
you know, specifically the wheelchair, but the pounding, the idea of like the, it was the sound a lot of it. Yes. Um, the, the, the pounding, like, you know, hearing like the voice and the EVP, like all that stuff, like, you know, just scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Because it, it definitely takes things that you could experience yourself in right. real life, which is like, and I think that's one of its biggest strengths. hearing a noise in your house that you can't quite place or right. seeing like a door, like swing a little bit or just. Mm-hmm. These small things that, like, really can become scary to you when you're by yourself, and it presents them in a way that feels realistic. So for being, like, completely fantastical in the sense that it's about, like, spirits and whatever, um, it, it grounds it in a lot of reality where you really do feel like you are kind of witnessing this haunting. And George C. Scott just, <clears throat> I don't know, like, he's almost like a cipher in the movie. Like, he's not even, like, really a proxy for you because he's... Doing, like, in a lot of ways, in my opinion, the opposite of what I would do in those situations. Yeah. So I think um, Ebert gave it a positive review. It was two and a half stars um, out of four. But um, Ebert says about that character, I guess the performance, um, he says, Halfway through the movie, um, admiring the craft of the seance scene, I found myself wondering if I didn't really care what happened. As an admirer of George C. Scott's acting, I found myself thinking the unthinkable, that Scott wasn't creating a character I was really worried about. That's because the Scott character is almost always self-possessed. He's the kind of man who can return alone to another haunted house after dark, climb down to a forgotten well where the bones of the original ghost have been found, and rummage around for more clues. He's too impassive. Maybe that was a deliberate acting choice with Scott declining to indulge in the tradition of overacting in ghost movies. And maybe then it reveals a need on the part of the audience for at least a little overacting, a few sweaty hysteronics to cater to our tribe of scare instincts. It's true because, like, you're experiencing things, mostly in, in movie, like any horror movie, but ghost movies, you know, to keep it relevant to this conversation, the character on the screen is acting out what you're feeling inside. Mm-hmm. Or is at least like that's the intent that you're they're scared you're scared so it's a shared experience but Scott is so and driven is is the right word is like he's so focused on the idea of like solving this to bring closure to his own life that he doesn't even care about what's happening around him half the time because he's more like the ghost is almost like just an inconvenience to him towards like the end of his goal which is to like solve this mm-hmm. um i think it i i think it is deliberate i i think that he, scott is trying to like present this guy as almost like the ultimate like empiricist like where he really is just looking for hard evidence of things and that he's not going to be dissuaded by the supernatural um it's very it it's similar in some ways um Richard Matheson story that is is a good horror movie from the seventies called um, Legend of Hell House, mm, right? <clears throat> which um, you know it's it's a scientist trying to prove uh, the existence of ghosts and these things happen around him and for the most part he's not scared by what's happening because he doesn't believe in ghosts he believes in like magnetic resonance or something, right? Um, but whereas he's like ultimately like like killed for his hubris. Like, Scott really does kind of, like, resolve the situation, even though, again, like, it's a terrible resolution for the senator. 
But, I mean, he, he does get to the bottom of it, and it really is his dogged determination that causes that to happen. Um, I'm wondering, does it make sense psychologically that he would be that way without having to ascribe a trait like empiricist, like empiricist to him or something like that? Like, does it make sense psychologically that he's not afraid because he's so disaffected? You know, it's weird, though, because he's an artist, right? So right. you think of artists as being, like, super emotional and super in touch with, you know, like, they're not... Like, if he was a scientist or a banker or something, it makes more sense because, you know, it's like Scrooge. It's like, it's a it's a, a bit of bad beef or whatever that right, causes yeah. his, like, indigestion. <clears throat> but, you know, Scott is playing, like, an artist. He's playing a guy that's, like, and a renowned artist that's celebrated... To the point where these people, like, are offering him this house to live in so he will compose again. <clears throat> and, I don't know, I mean, maybe maybe there's some analogy there to, like, the process of creating where you, even if it's difficult, you have to see it through to the end. Like, if you're kind of, like, impelled, or compelled, impelled, whatever the fuck that means. If you're kind of compelled to, like, create, like, you have to, like, do it. Like, you don't have a choice. And maybe this is similar where he's just compelled to, like just do it like he just has to get through to the end right um it's the performance definitely doesn't take anything away from the film in my opinion and george no, c scott is a good enough actor you know obviously like one of the the best actors of, like the latter part of the 20th century i would say um where he does like make interesting choices and you are like fascinated by him um but it's interesting and it's it's definitely more than just a scary movie. Like, it's got more weight to it. It's got, you know, it's it's filmed in a way that it, it I don't want to say it feels like a real movie because I don't like to, like, I think that any movie, whatever, that somebody puts, like, craft into, like, feels like a quote-unquote real movie. But, I don't know, it, it's, it really is just, like, a really good classic take on the idea that, like, there is life after death and what that means for, like, the people that are left behind, kind of. And in this case, it means you're going to die, but... Right. Yeah. No, I... This is one of my favorite ghost movies. I mean, um... Like, we're one of the few people, I think, that, like... That we know that really love this movie a lot. Yeah, and I, I... I think that on this list, it's the best pure ghost movie. Like, it's the best ghost movie that really is just a ghost movie. Right. Like, in the classic sense of, like... Yes. Like, like, M.R. James or... Sure. Or Dickens, or I don't know. Yeah, and it definitely has that feel to it. I think like is is much more of a late eighteen like eighteen nineties ghost story. Yeah, like, you know. Yeah. Um, even though it's you know. 70s, and again, like like seventies. To its credit, not never dips into like just overt horror. Like the horror comes yeah. from the scenario, and the horror comes from your inference into what's occurring as opposed to just being like oh here's a ghost or you know here's like some stuff flying at george c scott's head i mean things happen around him but it's not directed at him it's just happening it's happening anyway you know like this ghost is it's actually um the shirley jackson novel uh the hill house um haunting hill house or whatever um there's the line from and there's the terrible remake with um What's his name? Owen Wilson. Um, whatever walks there walks alone. And it's kind of like, that's like one of the, like in my opinion, like one of the greatest like lines in horror literature is the idea that 
whether you're there to see it or not, it's like the tree falls in the woods. Like that ghost is still like wandering around lonely in that house. And just because of your proximity, right. that you I see can't it. remember what the paranormal researchers call it, but it's like, um, it's not an intelligent haunting. It's, um, residual. Haunting. Yeah. Residual. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there is intelligence to this haunting because yeah, obviously scary. the yeah, kid sure. like yeah. wants his vengeance, but, right. but really? it's also just things are just enacting themselves. It's, it's the trauma repeating itself over and over. Yeah. But the, the kid is, is still trying to get him no, get noticed. Right? And the fact that we're having this conversation is another reason why I love this movie because it's more about what you bring to it and how it affects you personally rather than what's actually being shown on the screen. And I think sure. that's why it's so effective that it it's not just like bombast and it's not just like it's it's film at its best where it's it's playing on your emotions and it's playing on what you can't see or what it doesn't tell you just as much as what it shows you to be effective. And I I think it does a really good job of that. Definitely, you know, some really good scares. Um, If anyone listening has never seen it, watch it by yourself at night um, to really get the full effect of it. Uh, But yeah, just um, brilliant movie. Really well done. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's move to number one on the list, um, which is The Shining, um, also from 1980. Um, by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall and Scatman Crothers. Mm. Um, do you just want to go ahead and briefly just to talk about this? I'm assuming anybody who's listening to a podcast about ghost stories has seen The Shining, but do you just want to briefly describe the movie? The so, failed writer slash recovering alcoholic Jack Torrance uh, moves with his family to the Overlook Hotel. Um, to be the winter caretaker. Um, I don't remember if this is like explicitly said, but has lost his job as a teacher because of his alcoholism, it's implied, and is yeah, trying to kind of... that's the book goes more into that. Yeah. But I mean, but it's certainly the fact that he's taken a job in the middle of nowhere and implies that he's left his job or he's lost yeah. his job. Yeah, and wants to focus on his writing, sure. which is what he feels right. like is his last like hope to right. be a success. Um, the hotel has a history of, like, murder and, like, terrible events. Um, immediately the hotel starts to work its influence on Torrance, basically driving him crazy. Um, and also on his son, Danny Torrance, who has, in Stephen King's, like, parlance, like, the shine, which is, like, a psychic ability. Um, where they, they both see things... But whereas Danny is, like, terrified by it, Jack is, like, enthralled by it. And sort of plays on the fact that the hotel wants him to be enthralled by it because it needs him to fulfill a certain role, which is to continue, like, this, you know, history of, like, murder um, and debauchery. Um, Ends with Jack Torrance dead, frozen in a um, hedge maze. Um, Maybe one of my top ten movies of all time. Yeah, probably top five for me. I would say. Um, brilliant. Like I, I love Stanley Kubrick. So yeah. hard to say anything bad about a Kubrick movie. <clears throat> Some of, in my opinion, the most iconic scenes in <clears throat> mainstream horror. Um, Absolutely. Particularly, you know, the going around the corner and the two dead girls. Um, you know, stay with us forever and ever. Yeah, with that steady cam shot. Yeah. On the little bicycle um you know the weird like costumed characters like 
performing like lewd acts. Um, the woman in the bathtub. Um, here's Johnny. Yeah, here's Johnny. Smashing through the door with the axe. So. I'm just, I just want to bash your fucking brains in. Yeah, yeah, um, super like over the top and histrionic performance by Shelley Duvall. Um, who, full disclosure, like, one of my favorite actresses of all time. Um, like, one of my secret, like, celebrity crushes, like, above all else, and I can't even explain that. Um, but really, like, I mean, to call it, like, brilliantly filmed is, I think, even doing a disservice, because it's almost, like, sublime the way that he films some of those scenes. The way it uses natural light, the, like, just the immensity of the hotel and making the hotel a character in and of itself. It's just the fact that, like, in a lot of ways, in in terms of, like, traditional ghost stories, the idea of, like, the onset of winter and being, like, snowed in and stuck is a, you know, particularly, like, like, insidious and, like, terrifying idea that, like, the weather is trapping you and you can't get out, um... I don't know, just... Yeah, it's almost like everything is conspiring to make this happen in yeah. some ways. And again, like, I, I think that... I think Kubrick plays on that probably even more than, like, King does in the idea that it's just... There's an inevitability to it. Like, yeah. it's... You know, you've always been here, Jack. And right. especially, like, at the end, when it zooms in on this, you know... This picture from, what is it, like, 1920? Yeah. Um, of this party that happened at the hotel. And it's this picture that, like, you've seen in the background of scenes, you know, unknowingly for the entire movie. And there's Jack Torrance, like, front and center. You know, so it, it kind of does, like, is he really... Like, was he destined to go there and die because he's a reincarnation? Is right. he... It, it works on a lot of different ways, too, because right. just as, like... It's just a pure horror movie. It's a really effective movie. And maybe... Maybe one of the most effective horror movies ever filmed. And again, like, I mean, one of Kubrick's, like, part of the brilliance of Kubrick is the fact that he was able to film genre pictures in a way that elevated them above, like, on a critical level, above the genre that they're set in. Absolutely. So, it's 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 a psychological thriller. Um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of symbolism to it. Um, there's a lot of subtext you can read to the different things that happen, or you can just watch it as a straight horror film. And it really works as this idea, this really like sad idea of this like man that's basically cursed to never be able to leave this haunted place. And just that he's a part of it Yeah. and made all the better by the fact that, you know, Shelley Duvall and, um, the kid, Danny Torrance, like, uh, they they live like they survive yeah. and I think what you're saying there I mean I didn't <coughs> off the Rotten Tomatoes scores critics have that 86 percent of the audience at a 93 and I think that speaks a lot with yeah. that high audience score to the idea that you can watch it in a lot of different ways it's, it's very effective for a lot of people I think it's interesting yeah. that and we 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 I don't know if we've talked about this on a podcast in the past but we've definitely talked about it in in person that. I think that critics for a long time in the history of film have a really hard time rating horror films high. Yes. Like, even when they're a horror film that's done by a director um, that's considered to be, like, an acclaimed or, like, talented director, that there's there's almost, a like, a snobbery that comes with film criticism where, like, this is merely a horror film or it's, like, 
despite the genre trappings, this guy did a good job. And it, it really, like... I mean, horror, like, full disclosure, is, is by far my favorite genre of film. Um, and, like, even, like, in literature and whatnot. Like, I, I, I love horror. And I, I think that it discounts the fact that fear is just as primal an emotion as, like, love or hope or joy or laughter. I mean, like, in fear drives most people i think to do things like the fear of failure the fear of whatever and kubrick like really captures a lot of different like nascent fears that people have you know fear of failure the fear of like the dissolution of your marriage of not being a good parent of like falling below your station in life Mm -hmm. um the fear of the unknown you know the fear of like violent death i mean there's a lot of things that the shining shows you that are done in like brilliant ways. I mean, he just, I, I can't use that word enough. Like it really is one of the most well-paced, well-filmed, well-framed. I don't know. Just amazing. Like so, so many wanna, things in that movie. I want to do a couple things here. One, um, how do you feel about it as an adaptation from the original King novel? I love Stephen King as a kid, and I've actually kind of rediscovered my appreciation for King over the past year with um, reading It again uh, and his newest book, which now the name escapes me. But um, I think that King can be really long-winded and heavy-handed sometimes. And I think that the ideas that Kubrick pulls from the book and puts into the screenplay are 100% within the spirit of what King is telling, but he cuts out so many, like, extra things that King puts in there. Because as a novelist, he's got to build these characters. Like, he's got... He has an infinite amount of pages to tell you a story. Right. Whereas Kubrick is taking all the elements of that, distilling them to their core, and showing it to you in, whatever, two hours and ten minutes, however long that movie is. And... And it's, it's amazing that he tells that story. He hits, like, all the points, I think. The only thing that maybe... And I, I know that King doesn't like it as an adaptation and has said, like, bad things about it. And I think the reason for that is because in the novel, there really is, like, a sense of redemption for Jack Torrance. That Jack Torrance, like, as a spirit, is somehow, like, redeemed to Danny. That he, like, still loves his son. And you don't ever get the impression that Jack Torrance loves his son in the movie. Not a bit. Like, Jack Torrance actually kind of probably resents his son in a lot of ways. And that's done subtly. Like, in things he says, ways Mm -hmm. they interact with each other. The idea that one of the things that led to them moving to this hotel is that he broke Danny's arm at one point, being in a fit of, like, drunken rage or whatever. Um, And he certainly resents Wendy's love of Danny. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because he, I, I think he resents her too. I think that he feels yes. that like she's held him back in some ways yeah. from being like in his mind, this great novelist that he could have been because he's saddled with a wife and child. Yeah. Um, and this is the age before like, you know, you couldn't just like leave your wife. I mean, you could, but like divorce was much less common. And yeah. um, I mean, I think it's a really effective adaptation and I think it, I think it eliminates like the, the overwrought 
like purple prose that King can like fall into sometimes. And some of the cartoonishness, I think, like the hedge maze that comes alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't have like giant like hedge elephants like or whatever, right. which I thought was silly. It is. You know that that's the thing though is like things that work in print don't often work in film because your imagination, no matter how advanced cinema becomes, your imagination is always a much more powerful tool for fantasy than actually seeing something. Absolutely. But that's why like the best film adaptations work because they take maybe a different perspective on what you thought when you were reading the book. And I'll be honest with you, when I was a kid, like growing up and probably into my like late twenties, early thirties, I absolutely despise most film adaptations of books because as much as I love film, I think I've always been more in love with like reading Mm -hmm. and literature. And I've never felt that most film adaptations do a good job of capturing the story as well as I imagine it. But as I get older, like I really do appreciate the idea that it doesn't, it doesn't take anything away from the source material to show it from a singular perspective. And I think it actually helps you appreciate the source material more. And I'm never going to tell you that Stephen King is like a literary giant or anything, but he writes good stories. Like he tells you good stories and the shining for being like a little overly long as a book. It's a good story. And again, you know, Kubrick takes the best elements of that story and focuses on them and makes a really taut, like, tense almost sometimes like i don't know like overwhelming film that honestly like opens up you know king's original story to like much more interpretation i mean there's that um that documentary from a couple years ago where it's just like people talking about like these insane theories about what the shining is about Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um but I mean, I think that's I I think that speaks to the brilliance of that movie sure. that so many people can watch it and take so many different things. Whereas to me, and like we could talk forever about like the subtlety and like the symbolism and yeah. is it really like is it not just about like a haunting, but is it about like I don't know like the decline of like modern man or like just the existential dread of like life or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that Jack Torrance represents. But, I mean, ultimately, it just, you know, again, like, if you just watch it as a horror movie, it works really well as a horror movie. And it's a good adaptation. And It's about perceived, I mean, I would say probably, ultimately, it's about perceived emasculation of the male in some ways. I mean, do you you know if there's any history of alcoholism in Kubrick's family? Have you ever read about Kubrick at all? I don't know anything about Stanley Kubrick. Um... Which is crazy, because, like, maybe right one of, like, my five favorite sure. filmmakers, but I don't think I need to know anything about him. Like, I just... Yeah. Well, he seems like a really interesting guy outside yeah. of, um... I mean, um... He seemed to have really good taste for what I can gather, too, in terms of, like, who he liked. Yeah, he made some fantastic movies. So. Sure. Um... And Eyes Wide Shut. What about the... I need to go back and watch that again. Mm. I think it's better than what I what I remember. Yeah, maybe. I don't know if I ever have that time. <laughs> um, if I talked about the sound in this movie, like, what would you say about it? Really effective use of sound. Um, I, I say this a lot, and over the course of, like, however long this podcast goes for, like, I'll say it multiple times, but one of the things I'm always most impressed with is ambient sound in film. Yeah. Um, 
you know, like specifically you think about the wheels of the, the, the big wheel, like riding on the, the different textures of floor. So carpet, tile, carpet, wood, and just like the, like the inevitability of that sound where it's like, you're kind of like, you're dreading what he's going to come upon because you, he's alone and you know, he's going to come upon something, Yeah. but it's just like continuously going along and then like muffled and then loud and then muffled and then loud. And then it stops as you're seeing the dead girls. Right. And then, you know, the, yeah, it goes long enough for you to anticipate the sound. And when the sound disappears, that's where the horror is. Yes. The, the, the keening noise, I don't know what else to call it, of like the shining, like when they're experiencing the shine, basically. Yeah. Um, I think actually is like a brilliant representation of kind of like the white noise that's in your head sometimes when you're like, maybe not quite focused on something, but it's just kind of there in the background. It's almost like, like an internal like tinnitus or something or whatever that word is. Um, yeah. And just, I don't know, like, it's, it's all very ominous. Um, it feels very, very muffled and muted because, like, I think he's, he uses a sound to kind of represent, like, the claustrophobia of being stuck in a place where there's, like, snow all around you, where, like, you can't get out. He uses echoes really good, too, like the scene where Torrance is throwing that ball against the wall. And yeah. And you hear the echo and then, like, that cavernous open room that he sits in and he's writing in. Yeah. Same thing with the echoes of, like, their voice, like, in that room when they're, like, arguing a lot of times. The um, typewriter clacking. I yeah, mean, there's I, yeah. there's a lot of little things that are just, like, normal sounds yeah. that are infused with, like, a sense of dread because mm-hmm. of the way that Kubrick's filming. It's a good score, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty pretty you know, fantastic score. score for that, but it's, it's really effective. Let's say it's Hans Zimmer. That could be right. It's probably not, it's probably not him. Probably. Um, yeah, I, I just... There, if if I have any complaints about The Shining, and this is like a ridiculous complaint, maybe, but I kind of hate the elevator of blood thing. Like, oh yeah, I forgot that you didn't like. That. And I understand, I, I understand the symbolism. And I understand like why he's doing it when he does it. You know, and it really is just like maybe the best like graphical representation of all the blood that that hotel has claimed over the yeah. years. But man, it just feels like so, in a movie that's so like brilliantly subtle, it's the complete opposite of that. And I think that Kubrick kind of falls into that sometimes. And maybe it's on purpose. Like if you look at like all of his movies, you know, I mean, Dr. Strangelove is a ridiculous movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's hinted, I guess it's hinted at early in the movie. It's in, it's in one of Danny's premonitions early, right? Like just a shot of it. Yeah. Right. But it's like. I will say this, even if it's overall, it comes at the climax of the movie. Sure. Like, and it's like, I've always argued that this is a weird comparison. That's the only thing I can think of in my mind. It's like, if Oz would have, Oz the television show, if it would have ended with the ridiculousness that comes in season four, where... the inmates are allowed to like start selling drugs and stuff like that because of the new CO and all that kind of stuff that's going on there. And it would have ended at that point. They could kind of get away with it because it's the climax. It's like, it can get fantastic at the end. 
And it's like I would make I would make the same argument here is that because it's the climax, he's allowed a little liberty with like how overall that so elevator the elevator was. This is just me talking out my ass too. Um I actually kinda think the opposite. I, I think that Kubrick is sometimes condescending to you as a viewer. Mm-hmm. Like he feels like you haven't maybe you haven't gotten everything he's trying to say, so he has like like, in a completely over-the-top scene, like the fucking Space Baby, you know, in 2001. Yeah. Or, um, what's his name? Uh, Slim Pickens, like, riding on the bomb at the end of Strange Love. I mean, there definitely is, like... He definitely shows you, like, a big symbol a lot of times. Like, where, hey, this is what I'm talking about. And, I mean, that's fine, maybe. And, again, like, yeah. it doesn't take anything away from the movie. And it's a minor quibble that even when I'm watching it, I don't think, like, oh, my God, I hate this. Right. But when I think about that movie over time, and, like, a lot of times you ask me, like, if I have any complaints about mm-hmm. a movie, what mm-hmm. is it? So, I've started to think more in that respect. And it, it really is just kind of, like, for being, and not that The Shining is incredibly subtle at certain points. Because there's definitely, like, overt horror in that movie. But it's the most overt horror. And it just kind of feels out of place within the context of the rest of the film to me. No, I, I understand. I, I, I just think that sequence where Wendy's running around, it's like she's being exposed to all these horrific images suddenly. And, yeah. You know, I mean, that's the most horrific of all of them is um, the, basically the mouth of the hotel opening up and just, like, spilling hmm. blood out of it. Um, I mean, again, like, I it's I understand. And yeah. it's, like, that's a really good point. I never thought of it like that. So it's actually kind of an interesting way to look at it. But it really, like, even though it's at the climax, there still is 10, 15 minutes of movie after sure, that. Sure, yeah. I mean, but a lot of it's Jack chasing Danny around. Like, she's stuck in the hotel still, and he's outside with Danny at that point. Yeah, which is another, there. like, another horrifying scene when they're oh, out yeah, in the snow, yeah. and, like, it's, like, blue, and, uh-huh. like, you can feel, like, him freezing, kind of. Oh, like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, you can feel the winter. Like, yeah. It. Like, it's, it's, it's an incredible, like, how, how well he conveys that. Um, no, I've, because I grew up in alcohol, with an alcoholic, this movie's always been particularly terrifying to me. Mm. Um, and I'm convinced, I don't know much about Nicholson, but it's like, I'm convinced that Nicholson either grew up with an alcoholic or he himself was an alcoholic at some point because he plays the thing too damn well. Mm. Um... He knows how to modulate his voice back and forth between trying to be trying to be reasonable. And I place that in the air quotes yeah, yeah. because he thinks he's very reasonable. Um, well, to him, he's just a normal guy. He's right, just... yeah, but but he's also a normal guy filled of filled with logos as opposed to Wendy's, you know, pathos. Yeah. You know, like he thinks he's so logical and reasonable. And Wendy, why can't you just see? You know, like what I'm trying to, you know, just want to bash your fucking head in. Yeah, no, I mean that's the that's the scene. Is yeah. like the, it's the most horrifying scene to me is when he's following her up those stairs, you know, um, and he goes back and forth between trying to be reasonable and then like that inner demon slash asshole comes yeah. out and he starts doing like the Wendy, you know, and just, and, and there's, a, there's a repetition of alcoholics that he gets where he just keeps doing it over and over and over, um, where he thinks that that's, you know, he thinks it's, he thinks he's being funny. He knows he's being menacing. He thinks it's kind of funny too. Yeah. 
And it's like... Well, it's definitely funny to him. Sure. I mean, um, you know, and he thinks he... I mean, he thinks he's really clever, too, with that line, you know? It's like, one day I'm not going to kill you, you know? Um, you know, it's going to bash your fucking brains in. I, um, no, absolutely horrifying. Like, he gets an alcoholic, yeah, like, yeah. you know, at, like, his, like, most worst and depraved. Right? Which is funny, because I, I think one of the criticisms I've read of this movie is his performance and her performance just kind of being like over the top and yeah, overactive. Yeah. But I don't know. Like it's, yeah. it's a completely fantastical situation yeah. and it, it is in, so like, in a lot of ways with Torrance too. Like, yeah. I mean like, like the scenes of him just staring out windows or the scenes of him sitting on the edge of the bed where he calls Danny over. That's just as creepy to me as the scene yeah. where he's following her up the steps and like, you know, Danny, you know I never hurt you, right? You know, and it's like you don't believe it at all. Danny doesn't believe it, and you don't. Oh, and, believe and it. And obviously, you like there's historical proof in the context of the movie that it's <laughs> right, not even true. Right, yeah, I yeah. to me, like some of the more terrifying stuff is him talking to Grady. Yeah. Um, you know, as the former caretaker and like bartender slash mm-hmm. like bellhop or whatever. Um, what a brilliantly lit scene. We didn't talk about the color in this movie. Yeah, it's got really good. Like, so much variety of color. But that damn bathroom scene. Yeah. With, like, the red walls, like, you know, kind of orangish-red, those yeah. orangish-red walls that are there, and, like, the white linoleum floor and the bright lights, like, ugh. It's so, it's so well done. Yeah, that's the other thing, too, and again, it's, like, it's one of the things that I find the scariest, just from, like, a, like a philosophical perspective, is the sense that it's a place that's obviously meant to be lived in that's completely devoid of people, except for the three characters in the yeah. film. And so it, it's, it really is about, like, like the empty space there that's now, because, like, all the people are gone because it's the off-season, like, these other things can creep in. And it just, yeah. Yeah, no, I, um, the emptiness of that <clears throat> hotel is, uh, is felt, like, at all times. Like, for, for you never seeing any more than what room 237 their little suite that they have and the main hall and the kitchen kitchen, yeah and that and the ballroom you know like those are but it's like you feel the emptiness like the the ballroom especially like you know um you know when he um you know walks into that ballroom and goes to get his possible imaginary drink right yeah that's a that's a that's the thing because it's like i'm trying to think in the book does King ever say if he's really drinking or not? I can't remember the book that, he that, think, that he found. I think he finds booze in the book, if I remember correctly. Like, he, he does find a stash somewhere. And, like, Wendy finds it or something like that. But, um, yeah, like, he never really hints that if Jack actually finds booze in that place. Yeah. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because... It's an interesting idea, though, because, I mean, and not to get, like, too whatever into the symbolism, but it's it's spirits, right, is what alcohol right. is. Sure, and so. Sure. Is he getting drunk off the spirit of spirits, basically? Like, he's not actually drinking it, but just the idea of drinking it is enough to... Yeah. Like, maybe his his sobriety is that, like, tenuous and fragile that even just, like, imagining that he's drinking is enough to push him. Or that he was never, like, sober at all to begin with. It was just fake right. sober. Sure. Yeah. Um, um, but, but, yeah, like, I don't know. Again, like, so many iconic things, like Red Rum and... Yeah. Here's Johnny and the the girls and right. just a, everything about that movie is just it, yeah. it, it it's and almost it's a perfect well pace. Yeah, uh, yeah, really. You know, there's just enough to keep you going throughout the whole thing that you're never 
bored, and I've probably seen this movie at least at least a dozen times probably in my life. Um, you know, maybe more. I'm not sure. Um, I got to see it in the <clears throat> I got to see it on the big screen finally about a year, year and a half ago yeah. or whatever, and um, you know, you really like see like I think the the beauty on the big screen of some of those colors and the, like you know um, stuff like that that really stand out even more. I got to see it on the big screen in 98, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think then at the University of Maryland, they had a, during October, they had a film series where they played, um, I saw this and I saw another one of my favorite horror movies, which is uh, Eyes Without a Face. Mm. Um, and they did like, they showed you the film in a theater and then like they talked about it. But um, yeah, like it's it's amazing to see on the big screen and it really, like the way that Kubrick fills every frame with like something. Yes. And doesn't beat you over the head with it, but it's still like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's visually compelling. Like it's, it's one of the most like, for being like such a dour, you know, topic, it really is like, like just visually stunning the entire time. I mean, everything like the, the tracking shot leading up to the overlook when there's like flying over the, whatever, like that river or whatever it is, like going up the mountain, the over the shot of the, um, the topiary maze, like as a miniature, yeah. um, with them like running around in it to kind of set up the idea that like it's so easy to get lost mm-hmm. in it and yeah. paying that off, you know, in the sure. very last scene. I mean, there's, I don't know. Well, Jack Torrance telling his son about the Donner Party. At how old is Danny supposed to be? Like seven, seven maybe. Like, <laughs> um, and getting getting enjoyment from the idea that he's telling him about yeah. like people eating each other. I mean, it's it's. It's so well plotted in terms of establishing at least Kubrick's version of Jack Torrance. Yeah. Just what a sick prick he really is, like, throughout and continues to be. Like, there's... It's interesting, and I never even think of it as, like, an adaptation, because to me it's its own thing. Right. Um, But it's interesting that King has tried to go back since then and kind of, like, continue that story. Yeah. Like, maybe that he feels that he needs to somehow... I don't know. Like I, I've never read yeah, Doctor well, Sleep. Well, he, he certainly was the one that produced the miniseries, the um, Stephen Webber, which again is, um, like deals more with the idea that Torrance is like right just redeemed the, in the end. Well, sure, yeah. like that he. So well, I mean, if you look, if you look at it psychologically from Stephen King's perspective, who's an alcoholic, you know, yeah, the, who's an addict, that you know, he does not want to believe what Kubrick's saying. Like, sure. he wants to believe his story is that the alcoholic can be redeemed and is still a good father in the end. Or which, be, fine, which, whatever. Sure, and, but, but I, mean, I think that's ultimately where... The Stephen Weber scene off. at the end, when he's, like, at Danny's graduation or however Just it plays out, yeah, 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 and yeah. is, like, um, kissing, kissing, that's what I've been missing or whatever, the, like, terrible, oh, terrible fucking, like, yeah, yeah. modeling really shit. Bad, yeah. But, like... It removes the culpability of Jack Torrance as a villain. Like, the reason The Shining is so effective as a film is because even though Jack Torrance may not be able to help himself, like, neither can addicts in a lot of ways. Like, it really, like, Kubrick never lets Torrance off the hook. Like, Torrance, even if he can't help himself, is still culpable for his actions. And King wants to remove some of that culpability and almost redeem him, which I don't mind redemption. Like, you know, I mean, I, like I love the Star Wars series and one of the best things about Star Wars is Vader throwing the Emperor down the fucking Death Star shaft and right. 
like becoming a man again at the end. Right. But I mean that's that's earned. Like right. Jack Torrance is a villain and he's sure. a villain in a horror movie and he's one of the greatest like horror villains of all time cuz right. he's so human. Sure. Like it really is about like the evil that men can do in the wrong situation sure. and I don't know. Which I and for that reason it's like I see it as a psychological drama in some ways more sure. than anything like with paranormal elements in yeah. it. So what you just said though that the only one I might be able to see is maybe it's an analogy for America. That's the, I, I, there might be a reading of that in terms of like I think you've seen that stuff about the Native American mm-hmm. and stuff. I mean I could see maybe, I actually got really annoyed watching that room too. Oh, I hate that. And yeah, I, I, I just stopped watching it. It's, it's absolutely stupid. Like the, <clears throat> the moon landing stuff and all that. No offense to any of those people who believe that because you got yeah. your right to believe whatever sure, you want. Sure, yeah, absolutely. It's but be I, wrong. I, I, yeah, right. Um, I, I think it's lunacy. But I do think the Native American stuff might have an interpretation or, or and he does, behind it. He, he does show a lot of like Native American. I mean, and again, like they filmed in an actual hotel. Sure, sure. Um, I can't remember what the name of that place is. Yeah. That was the overlook. But it had, like, they used the stuff that was in that hotel. So. Right. And, and and if you really cared, we know how picky Kubrick is. Yeah. He could have changed it if he wanted to. So, I mean, um, maybe there's an interpretation to be had there. I so. Mean, I don't know how. Not to not to drag this out for too much longer, but the only good thing that came out of that King adaptation from the late '90s, the TV miniseries was um, TV Guide printed a series of short Stephen King short stories in the weeks leading up to it. Do you do you know about this? So King wrote, I think it was maybe four, like short stories that were about the people that died in the Overlook prior to the Torrances getting there. So he wrote like the story of Grady. He wrote like another thing about people being murdered and they were really good. Yeah. And they were like, I mean, it's TV guide, like, but they were these like sepia toned like illustrations and it was like on the bottom of like several pages if I remember correctly, but pretty, pretty cool idea and really well done. And like, honestly, I was so excited for that miniseries because I love The Shining so Mm -hmm. much and the amount of disappointment like, I can't even watch Wings anymore because, <laughs> like, it was so disappointing watching that shit, like, play out over the yeah. course of, um, whatever, like, yeah. several nights or, I can't remember how they portrayed it, but. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really poor, um, it's really poor. Man, and he was so, he was so Weber proud. And, and Rebecca De Mornay. Is yeah, the, King was so proud of that shit. And it's like, oh, dude, I know. like, I know. you just need to, you need to stick to your books. Yeah. I, I mean, I've always said, uh, I think that people would, not that every King adaptation's good, because there's a lot of really bad ones, but it's like, I think that people, uh, I think a lot of artists can understand and put a vision up with Stephen King's works and adaptations better than he could ever understand his own work sometimes. But here's the thing that I, that I love about Stephen King, is that no matter what he says about any adaptations, and I know that he doesn't like some of the ones that I enjoy... Yeah. But he's always willing to like sell that idea to somebody Absolutely. for the dollar, yeah, you the, know, the and, dollar babies or whatever. Yeah, uh, and it's yeah. it's just no. Uh, he's a, he's a good guy. I mean, like the fact that he allows artists to use, yeah. you know, so much of his work to adapt, even if they make the Langoliers <laughs> out of it, um, which is a terrible story that, too. That's probably a good place to end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we're against the Langoliers, <laughs> we've, we've hit the bottom of the barrel now. 
Yeah, you're welcome to my life. Okay, any final comments? Um, um, so again, there was some stuff that that could have been on this list that I love. Um, you know, we talked about Juan, we talked about Ringu, and the American Ring, which I actually, I, I think is really good. Actually, after you mentioned Legend of Hell House, I'm surprised. Yeah, was pretty fantastic. Yeah. I, it's just, even though it's about a haunting, like, it's a little too... I, I, I hate to call it science fiction-y, but it's a little too, um, I don't know. I, I love that movie, and it definitely could have been on the list, but I don't know. It just wasn't what I thought of when I thought of my top five. So, um, But I, I love ghost movies, and a really good ghost movie, I think, is like as a singular viewing experience. Like when you're just by yourself and you're just watching it for the first time, like you can really be like affected by like the idea of of things being haunted and it's it's something that people go back to a number of times and i think that i I think the five that we talked about tonight um with scrooge being like the outlier there because for me again that's more just like a nostalgia pick but you know I, i think they really like hit that center of like what we find terrifying about the afterlife and i think it's something that um recently you know even with like something like hereditary um, not that that's necessarily a ghost movie, but really does kind of play on that idea of like what happens to you after you die. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, it was, it was, uh, I had a lot of fun like coming up with this list and it was, yeah. it was fun to think about all these movies and try and weigh in my head, like what I enjoyed the most. So very good. Okay. So we will be back, um, next week next with, week. with another list, um, that we'll be putting, putting up and, um, we will see you then. Have a good night. Have a good night. Thank you.